Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I am joining you guys for the happiest week of all the weeks, which is Antibiotic Awareness Week. I'm joined today by Dr. Melinda Neuhauser and Dr. Arjun Srinivasan from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. First, to introduce Dr. Neuhauser, she is a pharmacist and acute care stewardship lead for the Office of Antibiotic Stewardship in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. Melinda, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Erin and SDP, for inviting Arjun and I to discuss the updated core elements for hospital antibiotic stewardship programs. We're really excited to be here. We are very excited to have you both. So thank you for taking the time to teach all of our audience about this extremely important aspect of antibiotic stewardship and especially Antibiotic Awareness Week. So up next, um, Dr. Srinivasan is the Associate Director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. He has worked on antibiotic stewardship since 2001. He was actually the founding director of the antibiotic stewardship program at Johns Hopkins. He's also an inspiring public speaker if you've ever seen Arjun talk, and he's a pretty nice guy. So Arjun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And just to echo what Melinda said, thank you so much to SIDP for not only inviting us to do this podcast, but for what you and the members of SIDP do day in and day out to lead stewardship uh, in the United States. The uh, SIDP has long been such an incredibly important leadership organization in antibiotic stewardship efforts in hospitals and in other care settings in the U.S., and that is ever more true as stewardship becomes even more important. Thank you so much. I can definitely say that SIDP members inspire me every day. It's just it's so amazing to see so many frontline people doing so many things and so passionate about patient care. So this is a cool week for all of us because we get to step forward and talk about what we love to do and try to help reach even more people. Before we get really rolling into the updated core elements of hospital antibiotic stewardship, which is the purpose of the podcast today to walk through these updated elements that were first released about five years ago, I do need to point out that the conclusions in this podcast and in this talk are the speakers and do not necessarily represent the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But all right, with that intro, Arjun, do you want to get us started? So these core elements are recently updated. Why were they updated and what's going on with this and what can we expect now? Yeah, I'd love to get started. Well, you know, the core elements were initially issued in 2014, the hospital core elements, and of course were followed by core elements documents for nursing homes and then outpatient settings and then in resource limited settings and then an implementation guide for small and critical access hospitals. But you know, five years is a really long time, uh, especially in antibiotic stewardship. The last five years have seen, I think, a, an unprecedented level of growth in antibiotic stewardship programs in hospitals, and not just in the growth of these programs, but in experience with how do you implement antibiotic stewardship in hospitals, and a lot more data. There have been more publications over the last five years in antibiotic stewardship than in any other period in history, and in fact, if you look at publications in stewardship, they've really exploded over the past five years. So there was a lot of data 
there are new requirements, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. And so we just felt like it was time. It had been long enough since we had done this. It was really time to look at the new data, to look at the new experience, and to revise the core elements to reflect all of this new information, all of the new experience. And so that's what we did. We set about doing this. Really, it's been about a year-long journey that Melinda and I have embarked on with the support of so many people including many, many SIDP members who have reviewed drafts, who had given us suggestions, uh, and really helped us shape this document into what we hope will be a really, really useful update to the core elements. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and it's, it is a huge comprehensive effort. And I believe it's not just the CDC who is supporting this. I know the CDC has partnered with several other organizations, SIDP members for sure, but you also have worked with the Pew Charitable Trust, the Joint Commission, and then you, you mentioned that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently jumped on the bandwagon with stewardship as well. So Melinda, do you want to walk us through some of that? Yeah, absolutely. Just wanted to highlight that through all this partnership, we've had increased uptake of all seven core elements, which is what we define as an antimicrobial stewardship program. And we track this through the annual NHSN hospital survey. And this is self-reported from the hospitals. And in 2014, 41% of the hospitals had implemented all seven core elements, and this has increased steadily to 85% in 2018. And what has been particularly impressive is that the critical access hospitals have increased from 20% to, in 2014 to 73% in 2018. And Arjun, do you want to kind of discuss some of the regulations and the partnerships that have led to such an increase of the core up elements uptake? Yeah, and so po folks probably know, because I imagine most of you on this call work in a hospital that is accredited by the Joint Commission, as roughly, I think, 80% of hospitals in the United States are. They were the first ones out of the gate with a, an accreditation standard for antibiotic stewardship programs. So in 2017, the Joint Commission issued its first accreditation standard for hospital stewardship programs. And this, I think, was a reflection of work that had been done by so many different organizations, including SIDP, to really advocate for the need to elevate antibiotic stewardship to being an accreditation standard, to be included as part of the things that hospitals need to do in order to deliver effective patient care. And the Joint Commission, of course, was soon followed by DNVGL. So DNVGL is the other one of the other large accreditation organizations in the United States, and they similarly issued a stewardship accreditation standard, I believe it was in 2019. And the nice thing about both of those accreditation standards is that they relied really heavily on the core elements. You know, they really reflected the core elements. The core elements are kind of baked in to the accreditation standard, which was great. So that if you're in the field and you're looking at what you need to do, the core elements then became one-stop shopping. If you were doing the core elements, you were you were complying with all of that, you were meeting those criteria for the NHSN survey, then you would also be in compliance with the Joint Commission standard and with DNVGL. 
the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy in 2018 issued a standard for critical access hospitals to implement stewardship programs in order for them to access what's called the flex grant funds. So these are funds that uh, are distributed to critical access hospitals. Almost every critical access hospital in America applies for and receives these flex grant funds, and there are requirements that they have to implement in order to get those monies. And starting in 2018, making progress towards implementing all seven of the CDC core elements became a requirement in that flex grant funding program. So all critical access hospitals began reporting information to NHSN on their stewardship programs and making progress towards implementing the core elements. And then finally, as we've been alluding to, the last kind of piece of this puzzle that fell into place just a couple of weeks ago at the end of September, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued a revised condition of participation that now requires that any hospital that is going to receive money from CMS must have a, an antibiotic stewardship program, and that applies to all acute care hospitals and all critical access hospitals. And so we really have, uh, in the past five years, right, since the core elements were first issued, moved from a position where uh, antibiotic stewardship programs were kind of this thing that was, uh, was nice to have, maybe a luxury, and, you know, all of us were out there advocating for it and saying, oh, we, we really think this, this is a good idea. And now we are at a place where it's a, it's a good idea that's required. So all acute care hospitals, all critical access hospitals now must have an antibiotic stewardship program. And again, the CMS condition of participation also references the core elements. So I think there's a lot of conformity around the core elements as the way to implement stewardship, which we think is fantastic. The CMS requirement takes effect six months from the date that it was issued. And so sometime in March of 2020, that requirement will be uh, will go into effect from CMS. So a lot has happened with respect to stewardship requirements. It sure has. And it's honestly an incredible effort on a national level. It's all vitally important to patient care. And it's really exciting to be a frontline stewardship pharmacist and physician and in this field at this time. I mean, I started my first year of residency in 2015. I started my infectious diseases training in 2016. And so I am intimately familiar with all of this coming out and being in the hospital. And it's amazing. You have an idea. And at first it's like, okay. And then now with all of this backing and with the CMS ruling, now it's like, yes, hospital administration is coming forward and saying, what can we help you? What do you need? We're having monthly meetings, at least at my hospital, with the director of pharmacy and our C-suite leaders to say, these are the things we're thinking of as a stewardship team that are priorities. Does that align with the hospital priorities? And the, the support is very nice, and it, it helps us all take better care of patients. So it's been a really exciting time. It's not the only updates from you guys either, which is also exciting. And so the other major document at kind of the cusp of all of this coming out was back in 2013, the CDC released the Antibiotic Resistance Threats Report. And I think if you do anything in the infectious diseases space, you are familiar with these amazing colorful graphics about multidrug resistant threats and 23,000 deaths per year. And I think that has to be one of the most cited documents in infectious diseases talks of all time, probably. Um, <laughs> and that... Even that is being updated, I understand, if not updated as we speak. 
Yeah, Aaron, that's right. This is uh, this is uh, exciting to see that document updated. You know that that has been a long time coming. But I think you're you're right. That document, the 2013 AR Threats Report, really did transform the way we talk about antibiotic resistance. And I think because prior to that, you know, we issued a lot of reports, but we tended to talk about antibiotic resistance in face it, like pretty wonky terms, right? We kept issuing these reports talking about percent non-susceptible isolates, and nobody really cares about that outside of the infectious disease world. And in 2013, that threats report, I think, was transformative because it was the first time that we attempted to talk about antibiotic resistance in terms of the number of people who were impacted. That had never been done before. And that's where we came up with those numbers, you know, 2 million people per year in the United States impacted by an antibiotic resistance infection and 23,000 deaths from those infections. So it did, it had a huge impact. Obviously, six years is a long time, lots of new data and really new methodology. So the new threat report uses some really updated methods to produce new national estimates. And so for the healthcare estimates, we are using data from electronic health data systems. And that's a big change, right? Because the last threat report, we, we did the best we could at the time, but we were using prevalence surveys from data from about 12,000 patients and about 180 hospitals in the United States. For the healthcare estimates in the new threat report, we're using electronic health data from roughly 700 hospitals representing over 7 million discharges. So it's about 20% of all of the discharges in the United States. And so we feel like these numbers are so much more robust this time. And what you will see in the threat report is that as we suspected, the estimate that we had in 2013 was a significant underestimate of the problem of antibiotic resistance, especially when it comes to the healthcare pathogens. But what you'll also see in the threat report, and I think this is the amazing news that's in this new threat report, is that we are actually seeing progress. We are seeing the number, the numbers of resistant infections, particularly for these healthcare pathogens, things like MRSA, multi-drug resistant pseudomonas, carbapenem resistant acinetobacter, CRE, they're for the most part going down or holding steady. In fact, all of the pathogens except for CRE and the healthcare side went down. CRE was stable and you know we would consider that a success given how quickly CRE was emerging. The one exception to that rule is ESBLs and we have seen a pretty big rise in ESBLs over the last several years. But what's interesting there is ESBLs kind of in the healthcare settings are relatively flat and this rise in ESBLs is driven by increases out in the community. So, you know, the take-home message from the new threat report is that there is uh, there is encouraging news. There's evidence that we can make progress against antibiotic resistance if we implement what we know works. And the other message, of course, is that there is a lot more left to be done. There are still way more, way too many of these infections, way more than we want to see. And we're going to have to try to figure out what's going on out in the community with ESBLs. So the lots of good news there, progress being made, and certainly uh, always more to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
reaching stewardship into the community space is obviously the next big wave for all of us as health systems become system-wide um, and think not just about my hospital, but, but about the impact everywhere. And I liked your earlier point about how the original way we used to talk about antibiotic resistance didn't really touch people. And you're right, it didn't, at least when I know I'm talking to providers, antibiotic resistance developing down the line and even antibiotic related adverse events are honestly pretty nebulous to frontline providers who are making decisions in the moment right now about a patient who is crashing or even a stable patient. They're like, I need to treat the patient in front of me. And the consequences of antimicrobial overuse are very nebulous compared to an incurable cancer or something like that. And so antibiotic stewardship and antibiotic resistance just honestly has lacked the advocacy that other disease states have had for a long time. But I think we're getting there. And I think with these reports coming out and the more we talk about these numbers, people are starting to appreciate this and understand this. At this point in time, most providers have probably cared for a patient who they didn't have an antibiotic option for. And once that's happened to you once, you have a lot more respect for this problem. And so I, I think it's all just really great. And the more that comes out about it, the more we can, we can say this. But so let's get to the, the core of the, not to, I didn't mean to do that, but let's get to the, <laughs> oh man, let's get to the, the meat of this podcast, which is to walk our audience through the updated core elements. And so the current or the original core elements were leadership commitment, accountability, drug expertise, action, tracking, reporting, and education. So to anchor our audience, those were the original seven. And now we're going to walk through the updates. And they are, they are similar, but they are more powerful. I will say I'm really excited about how these updates turned out and what the language is behind them. So the first one is hospital leadership commitment, though. Um, I, I know originally this was a good step in the right direction, but leadership commitment, at least from my understanding and when I was training, was you could pretty much get away with like a signed letter from your C-suite that's like, yep, we support having a stewardship program, and that was a checkbox for leadership commitment. How is this changing for 2020 and these updated core elements, and how is this becoming more robust? You know, I think, Erin, one of the things that we hear a lot about leadership commitment is that, you know, this issue of making sure that the leaders of the stewardship program have the resources that they need in order to get the job done is so centrally important. I think every paper that I've ever read about stewardship and barriers to optimizing stewardship in hospitals, the number one barrier every single time, and by a long shot, like it's probably number one, two, and three is we need resources. We don't have the resources that we need in order to get the job done. So what we've done in the revisions of the core element is to take that data and try to reflect that in the core element. So we've now divided the leadership commitment section into kind of priority items and then other items. And what we call out right up front is that, you know, perhaps the most important thing that the leadership of a hospital can do to support its antibiotic stewardship program is to make sure that the stewardship program has the resources that it needs. And we clarify that, you know, that includes both time, that the leaders of the program need to have time to dedicate to antibiotic stewardship, and then all those other resources as well, information technology support and those types of things that we know are also so kind of fundamentally important. And, you know, that has been, you know, the really the, the major emphasis of the leadership commitment section. And we really did expand this idea of gaining and garnering the support of other groups in the hospital. And um, I'm going to see if Melinda would be willing to talk a little bit about the 
changes that we made in those areas and how we kind of tried to grow that section on support from other groups. Absolutely, Arjun. The key support was in the original core elements, uh, but now we're really emphasizing that hospital leadership should ensure that other groups and departments are aware and ideally collaborate with the stewardship programs. Antibiotics impact almost every healthcare professional in the hospital, and we really try to highlight the importance of engaging the clinicians and department heads and program heads and P&T in the context of creating policies to improve antibiotic use that could be implemented in electronic health health records, as well as IPs and the hospital epidemiologists can collaborate with uh, stewardship programs and monitoring uh, CDI and comparing some of the, the risk adjustments with CDI compared to the risk adjustments that we have with antibiotic use. And of course, the quality improvement and patient safety and regulatory can be a, a key collaborator as well for stewardship programs. Microbiology is having a more enhanced role with the prominence of diagnostic stewardship that is being up really have a high uptake in hospitals now with the rapid diagnostics. And then IT, we, we all know as stewards that we want to have more support from IT in terms of implementing the protocols that we develop in the electronic health records, as well as reporting for antibiotic use and resistance. And lastly, nursing, of course, has that face-to-face -face contact with the patient and can really help stewards and, and providers in optimizing uh, some of the, the roles of when it's appropriate for CDI testing or potentially going from IV to PO and, you know, other kind of components. Yeah, I, And that I, nursing section has been a, a big change and expansion. You know, that's something that um, we really hadn't engaged nurses very much in stewardship when we wrote the, the initial core elements draft. And that's something that we have really worked to try and correct. I think that it was a real oversight that we didn't work hard to try to engage bedside nurses in stewardship efforts, given that, you know, they administer every dose of antibiotics. They have great insight into like what day of therapy it is, the IV to PO stuff. There's just a lot they can do. And, you know, they're just ever present. They're the ones who spend the most time with the patients at the bedside. And so I think it was definitely an oversight. I think we've taken some major steps in correcting that oversight. We've been working with the American Nurses Association and working with a number of other groups to try and find more ways to engage uh, nursing. But Erin, uh, it sounded like you were going to say something and it would be interesting. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what you've maybe been able to do or what you would like to do with nursing in your hospital. Yeah, you right, You jumped in. We both jumped in with the same thing. I was going <laughs> to emphasize, um, you basically said exactly what I was going to say about how powerful nursing can be and how excited I am that they are listed here and we are bringing them in as a vital role in stewardship. Um, a great example of this, we recently rolled out dose optimization at UPMC, so prolonged infusions of all anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams. We give a lot more 2Q8 of miropenem to a lot more patients. And when I first started this initiative, when our team first decided to do this, 
everyone's immediate gut reaction was you're going to get so much pushback from nursing because you're running antibiotics over three hour infusions and line time and whatnot. And I was like, I have never met a nurse yet that didn't go into healthcare to want to take care of people. And they just don't know what they don't know. And as soon as, and no, none of us do, whenever I learn about anything new, I'm like, why would you do that? Oh, that's the answer. That's yes. How can I help you do that? And that's what our nursing colleagues feel too. And so when I went group to group and meeting to meeting. I mean, I probably spoke at 20, 25 different nursing committee meetings across the 700 bed hospital. And that's just our one hospital that we did this at our sister hospital of Shadyside down the street as well. Um, when my colleagues over there went and talked to nursing, one, we learned so much from them about things we may not have thought of that made our initiative stronger when we tweaked certain things or taught our pharmacists certain, certain things about verifying the orders and whatnot. And then two, they didn't have a single worry. I mean, they had logistical concerns that we worked through, but they were like, oh, people get better faster from their infections and possibly die less? Yes, please. Let me help you. So nursing was our biggest advocate, and I've never met a nurse that wants to push back on stewardship initiatives. And so I think engaging them is one of the best things we can do as a team. And then to Melinda's point about in IT, I think you kind of put some emphasis on that. And I kind of laughed over here because information technology is absolutely, I think, where we need the most resources. I mean, we could always use more physicians and more pharmacists and more nurses and more people in general, more microbiologists. But I actually will say, so microbiology technologists, we need more of. We need more very skilled people in the lab being able to interpret these tests and run tests and, and work with us in the terms of diagnostic stewardship. And then information technology. I mentor all my students and residents now. I'm like, if you're not sure and you even remotely like computers, go be an IT pharmacist because we need so many more of you. And as a stewardship team, we'll, we'll have all these things teed up. And then the delay in getting the IT build can be up to a year, sometimes even longer. And by then, you know, you've kind of figured it out without it and or you've moved on to something else. And so we sorely, sorely need information technology resources and healthcare to get things built better and faster. We know education alone is not sustainable and we need forcing functions to help people make better decisions up front. And so that's something I would, if any hospital administrator is listening to this, I would beseech you to invest in information technology resources. I just wanted to also comment that we are updating our website and it's going to be user friendly and we're going to be listing out each of the core elements and then placing links either internal or external links that will be useful for stewardship and going back to the nursing we'll have the ANA CDC white paper on nursing stewardship as well as some external links to nursing stewardship tools. So I think this is also important to not just look at the updated core elements, but then also look at our revamped website for tools and resources. That's awesome, Melinda. Thanks for sharing that. Let's move into the next core element. I think that up next we have accountability or how this reads in the updated elements. Appoint a leader or co-leaders, such as a physician and pharmacist, responsible for program management and outcomes. Now, I love this. I'm a firm believer both from my own practice and from learning from my colleagues that we are absolutely better together. So I love this emphasis on pharmacist-physician co-leadership as we develop and mold stewardship programs. Yeah, and you know, Erin, this is a great example of the way that we're able to use the data to help inform the revision to the core element. So this is nothing more than a reflection of, of reality. We know from the most recent NHSN hospital facility survey that 59% of antibiotic stewardship programs in the United States are co-led 
by a physician and a pharmacist. So this is already the model that the majority of hospitals are using, and that's the type of data that we can pull in and say, look, we need to just formalize this. This is how people are making this work. Obviously, if 60% of people are doing it, they're doing it because they're finding that that's the most effective way to get this done. And so we were able to, to use that data and reflect on it and say, look, given that that's what people are finding to be effective, let's just call it out. And let's say that, you know, it's probably the right way to go moving forward that these programs need to be co-led by physicians and pharmacists. And so we came out and made that statement in the document, and it's a reflection of what people are finding to be effective. I think the co-leadership optimizes the synergy and outreach that pharmacy and medicine can have in improving antibiotic, antibiotic use. We also highlight in the updated core elements that stewardship rounds for the co-leaders can really strengthen the program leadership. And this can be the physician and pharmacist co-leaders meeting three times a week and not only talking about potentially patient-specific considerations for prospective audit and feedback, but also really talking about and discussing the programmatic management components of stewardship in terms of updated of the treatment guidelines, or maybe there's opportunities for grand rounds and education, or even highlighting U U.S. Antibiotics Awareness Week. Yeah, and that the accountability and this co-leadership concept segues very nicely into the third updated core element, which is a big one for us, especially. This used to be drug expertise. And with this update, this this core element is being changed specifically to pharmacy expertise. And so it's defined as appointing a pharmacist, again, ideally a co-leader of the stewardship program to help lead implementation efforts to improve antibiotic use. Yes, this is really exciting for pharmacy in that we renamed it to reflect the critical importance of the pharmacy engagement for leading implementation efforts to improve use. It is important to identify a pharmacist and empower this pharmacist to lead implementation efforts and ideally also provide them the dedicated time and resources that Arjun had discussed in the hospital leadership component. We also recently launched the five ways hospital pharmacists can be antibiotics aware. And these are posters, actually the first tools and resources that are specifically for pharmacists. And this can be used by the lead stewardship pharmacist as well as all clinical or general pharmacists involved in stewardship. And so I really encourage you to look on our website and see if there's a mechanism for you to incorporate this in your stewardship pharmacy activities. Yeah, I think that and, you know one all, of the things that oh, oh go ahead. Oh, I'm Aaron. sorry, Arjun. We keep wanting to say the same thing. No, you can go. I know. We well, I was just going to emphasize. You know, one of the things that we we've been talking about, and, and I think we we heard this from so many of the stewardship folks that we talked to, is this need for the physician and the pharmacist to, to sit down and talk on a regular basis. You know, they said you can't just have co-leadership on paper this really, it does need to be a team. And I know in, in most hospitals, I think that works really effectively. Like they, they really do work together, but they said, you know, it's really important to emphasize that uh, on a regular basis, and like Melinda was saying, maybe it's three times a week, but that the physician and the pharmacist really sit together and review cases or talk about what's going on. And people said, you know, that that meeting just really increases our effectiveness as a team. 
Yeah. Okay. So now I have two comments. I'm glad you said that though. So my first comment, Arjun, I'm going to finish your thought in that I could not agree more. And as a frontline stewardship pharmacist, being able to meet with a physician regularly makes me better and it makes our patients better and it makes our programs better. I couldn't do this without that support. And I trained in a program um, where Dr. David Andes was actually the chair or president of IDSA. I don't know. He was some planning the ID week meeting. He had a very fancy and important title. Dave is amazing. Um, but when I was a resident, he had so much going on, Was had all these national appointments from the physician side of antibiotic stewardship and infectious diseases leadership. And he still held the stewardship pager every third week for like from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. like all the other physicians did. And when he was on stewardship, I would call him every single day and run complicated cases by him that I needed support with or I needed a tag team to help with the diagnosis and the recommendation. And so it's like, if he can make that time and he can teach me and train me, then all of us can make that time. And it, it really is just awesome. And then at UPMC, I have that support now as well. One of the first things our stewardship team did this year to try to encourage this is we meet once a week for half hour to an hour. And it's like, we try to table all those fires that come up and all these random things in stewardship. And if it can wait and we don't need to send a million emails, we try to have this face-to-face -face once a week meeting to talk through drug shortages and complex patients. Or did you hear that this service is doing this with antibiotics now? What are we going to do about <laughs> that? And um, it's, it's really awesome to have that face-to-face. The other thing I want to I can tell you, Aaron, from the perspective of an ID doc, that uh, you're, you're being uh, humble. We get as much or more out of those discussions than you do. <laughs> we, we learn every bit as much from you all as you are learning from us. Oh, thank you. And then to all the ID doctors across the country that I like cold call, like I have to give Jason Newland a shout out too, because he, in my residency, I had to do a lot of peds infectious diseases because we did not have a pharmacist in our pediatric hospital. And that was the need at the time. I knew nothing about peds and Jason Newland would just talk to me over the phone <laughs> about all these pediatric infectious diseases cases. So you guys are awesome all across the country. Um, and then quickly to Melinda's point about all pharmacists and these, the five ways all hospital pharmacists can be antibiotic, antibiotics aware. I guess two things. First, I would probably say that's all pharmacists everywhere. I think we talked about this earlier, but community pharmacists need to start doing this. I need Walgreens and CVS and independent pharmacy owners, pharmacists to be reviewing these antibiotics for appropriateness and counseling patients and having the time and the resources to do so. So I think that's kind of the next big wave. And then we work in our UPMC system. We work at least Again, I can only speak to my health system, but I'm sure all health systems face this is we have a lot of hospitals that don't have an infectious diseases pharmacist. There's only 110 or so infectious diseases training programs for pharmacists in the whole country, and there's 5,000 hospitals. So the, the fact of the matter is more people are frontline point people for stewardship are not particularly ID trained, and that is okay. There are so many stewardship certificate programs out there. SIDP one has one, MADID has one. Um, there are national ones that you can do, and you can get training and teach yourself on the job. That's how we all learn the best, and it's just important to help our pharmacists and our physicians that may or may not have ID training in particular, but there needs to be a point person at each hospital to, to advocate for the stewardship program. And Melinda, do you want to talk a little bit about the pharmacy posters? Because I know SIDP was incredibly helpful in kind of helping us think about and develop those and then, and then get them into existence. Yes, and so the posters are actually co-branded with ASHP and SIDP, and it's entitled Five 
ways hospital pharmacists can be antibiotics aware. And there's a main poster that discusses five ways, which is verifying a penicillin allergy, avoiding duplicative anaerobic coverage, reassessing antibiotic therapy, avoiding treatment of asymptomatic bacteria, and then using the shortest effective antibiotic duration. And then each of these five ways, we have a supplemental poster that is a case-based. For example, if you're the pharmacy pharmacist that's reviewing orders and you see Ace3&M, that is the scenario for verifying penicillin allergy to target that you could potentially evaluate uh, if the patient had previously received a cephalosporin, you know, really look into the documented allergy, determine if there could be a beta-lactam that could be utilized. And so each of the posters has this very specific scenario to guide pharmacists in different areas of the hospital to contribute to stewardship. That's so awesome. And those actions, I think verifying penicillin allergies is my current favorite stewardship action. It's really satisfying to talk to patients and, and optimize their antibiotic choices. We actually have a podcast coming out later this week where two SIDP members are going to walk through each of these five elements. So to our audience, look forward to that um, later this week, and we'll go through that in even more detail. But in, while we're in this action realm, let's get to the next core element, which is really the heart of all of this, and that is action. So implementing interventions to improve antibiotic use. And we've talked about a few, but do you guys want to walk through maybe some, a few more highlights in the document about what qualifies as a stewardship action? Absolutely. I'll begin and then I'll turn it over to Melinda. And this is a section, I think, that's got, undergone the, the most significant revisions. And again, it's all based on data and experience that has come out since the 2014 core elements document was issued. And I think the, the really big change that you'll see in the document here is that there's a major emphasis now, and we've called out two specific actions as being the most important ones for stewardship programs to implement. And those, of course, are the two evidence-based interventions in stewardship, right? Prospective audit and feedback and pre-authorization. And these are the, the only two that achieve kind of the, the real evidence basis, the kind of 1A evidence, if you will. And they were called out in the Shea IDSA Stewardship Implementation Guideline as the most effective stewardship implement, uh, interventions. And so we've you know, tried to parallel that evidence and we're trying to be consistent with that implementation guideline. And so we are, have called those out as well as being the actions that stewardship programs really should focus on, one, uh, one or the other or both. I know stewardship programs have taken different approaches to it, but we really do emphasize that those are the ones that people should be focusing on, recognizing, of course, that those look really different in different hospitals, right? There are probably as many different ways to implement prospective audit and feedback and pre-authorization as there are stewardship programs out there, and many of them are very effective. So we really, though, want stewardship programs to be looking at those interventions and figuring out how to implement those. And then kind of as a, as a supporting action for those two, we call out the facility-specific treatment guidelines because so many experts told us that, look, you know, it's really helpful to have our treatment guidelines as the basis of our pre-authorization or our prospective audit and feedback because when we're doing that, what we're doing is generally 
guiding people based on our own recommendations. And so we have, if we have pre-authorization, it's based on our criteria for what we use to treat these different infections. And when we're doing prospective audit and feedback, we're generally looking to see, like, are they using the thing that we, the antibiotic that we would recommend? Uh, and so that, I think, is one of the major changes that, that we've made. But Melinda, do you want to add on there some of the other changes that we made in the action section? Yeah, we also highlighted the common infection-based interventions, and so we don't list them as priority, as Arjun just mentioned, the three activities we mentioned as priority, but this is really to emphasize that community-acquired pneumonia, urinary tract infection, and skin and soft tissue infection contribute to about half of the antibiotics prescribed in the hospital, and so there's really important opportunities that stewards can utilize to improve antibiotic use in these, in these infections. And we have a, a great table that we included where we talk about opportunities from a diagnostic as well as empiric therapy and then definitive therapy. And we talk about definitive therapy and just not tailoring to culture results, but then also including that important discharge stewardship. And that we know that for many of these infections that the antibiotics are being prescribed essentially too long and that you can use discharge stewardship as an opportunity to optimize the duration of therapy for these infections. Yeah, the data that's coming out now about discharge prescriptions is astounding. Um, I think University of Michigan Health System Networks just published a paper about discharge antibiotics, and um, the Duke Network published a paper both in summer 2019 about discharge antibiotics and how like 90-something percent of discharge antibiotics are excessive and inappropriate. So this, I think, is a, the next transitions of care, again, in the outpatient space is where stewardship teams can focus a lot of efforts. And Arjun, I'm sorry, I cut you off for a third yeah. time. No, and so, I was about to say exactly the same thing again, Erin. Oh so yeah, you're exactly <laughs> right. So about two thirds of patients, like for looking at community card pneumonia, uh, I think that paper from Michigan showed that about two thirds of patients got excess durations of therapy. And you're right. I think it was 93% of that excess duration was, was the post-discharge duration. Uh, so focusing your stewardship efforts on that moment of discharge can be, you know, so incredibly powerful in, in optimizing therapy. I also wanted to add that there's going to be tools and resources available on our website, our updated website, with an external link to a project that we had worked with Henry Ford Healthcare System. And it's actually a pharmacy-led through collaboration with multidisciplinary team at Discharge, and that they perform discharge stewardship for common infections, and they'll be posting their tools and resources and education that they had worked on actually uh, with us on this project. Well, that's awesome. We look forward to seeing those resources and that data because like I said, and I think like we've all said, this is the next thing inpatient and outpatient stewardship members are going to have to tackle for sure. So guys, I think we're four down, three to go. Let's move into the next let's bundle the next two core elements together. So the next two are tracking and reporting. I think the name of these elements is staying the same from previous, but you know, what's, what do we need to know in the tracking and reporting space that's been updated and, and how are these two things different? How are they synergistic? 
Yeah, I'll comment on this. We updated the terminology and we specifically state that tracking is monitoring antibiotic prescribing, impact of interventions, and then other important outcomes like C. difficile infection and resistance patterns. And there's a couple key points here that I think in the past we've emphasized antibiotic use and resistance patterns, but we also wanted to really emphasize if you're going to be contributing to an action, for example, prospective audit and feedback, treatment guidelines, then you should also track and report the impact of these interventions. For example, for pre-authorizations, you'd want to ensure that you don't have delay in therapy for critical infections. And so I think that is a new component of the updated core elements is that we're really having synergy between the action, tracking, and reporting, as well as education. And then another important update to the tracking section is that when these original core elements were released in early 2014, the NHSN-AU option had been launched, but the risk adjustment the SARS were not available yet. And so we spend a considerable amount of time discussing the risk adjustment. And then we actually state that it is important for hospitals to monitor and benchmark inpatient antibiotic use by electronically submitting your antibiotic use data to NHSN and microbial use option. And so this ties back to hospital leadership and that it's important that hospital leadership provides the necessary resources to the stewardship program and IT and IPs uh, to really be able to not just launch AU reporting, but also to maintain that. And that's obviously been an area you know, of huge growth over the last several years. I think in 2014, there were maybe fewer than 100 hospitals that were reporting data into the antibiotic use option. And now there are over 1,400 hospitals that have submitted data to the AU option. So we're really gaining more and more experience with how to use this benchmark AU data. And I think we would all acknowledge that this is a really nascent field, right? We have not a lot of experience with using risk-adjusted antibiotic use benchmarks for stewardship interventions. So we're learning a lot and we're folks in the stewardship community are out there doing this work and teaching us how to use this data most effectively. And then we're working hard to incorporate what they teach us into the core elements, into the AU option. But I think this has been such an area of growth and is an area, I think, of real promise for the future. If we can really figure out how to harness the power of the antibiotic use data to inform stewardship activities. Arjun, if a hospital or a stewardship program is not currently reporting their antimicrobial use, but they would like to, what are some ways they can start to learn how to do this and where do, where do they begin? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are a lot of resources that have been developed on how to begin reporting into the AU option. If you search for the antibiotic use option of NHSN, there are a number of different resources that are available there that give you some guidance on how to get started and where to where to go. The other place to go and look is on the SIDP website. There is a list of the different electronic vendor companies that are able to 
submit data electronically into the NHSN AU option. Many, many of the electronic data systems that hospitals use now have a compatibility with the NHSN AU option. So they can submit that data for you. And the list of those companies is housed on the SID website. This is a, a resource, a service that SIDB has been providing to the nation for many, many years, and it uh, continues to be housed there on that website. And that's really probably the most effective and easiest way to do it is to figure out if you, if your system, your electronic health record system is one of those that can submit the data, and then to work with your IT group at your hospital to figure out how to get that done. Awesome. I will say our website committee is a small but very mighty group of volunteers. So <laughs> thank you. Um, they they hate me because I'm like, can you guys post more podcasts? Can you can you, can you do this at three in the morning? Um, but no, they are an awesome group of people that keep that website up to date. And so check out those resources. But guys, it's time to bring this home. We are to our last, our seventh, but certainly not least core element. And that is education. So educating prescribers, pharmacists, and nurses in particular about adverse reactions from antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, and then optimal prescribing. I mean, we've talked, I think education falls in everything we've discussed, right? Everything we do, we want to teach people why we're doing it and why it's important. Um, but can you walk through the importance of education and specifically what's called out in the core elements? Yeah, I'll take a crack at, at starting off there. And I think that the major changes that we have made in the education section is to acknowledge a couple things. One, that like you said, Aaron, everything that we do is education. And so one of the things that we mentioned is, look, you don't, you don't have to think about this as giving grand rounds or giving talks to groups of people. If you're doing prospective audit and feedback, if you're doing pre-authorization, that is nothing more than case-based education, right? Every time you have those interactions, you're providing case-based education to those providers. And so we really emphasize, you know, think about case-based education because that's really what's compelling. That's what's effective is at the moment that the antibiotics are being used is giving the provider that education that, oh, hey, you don't need Piperacillin, Tazobactam, and metronidazole to cover anaerobes because Piptasa will cover that in most situations. It's that type of really specific education that's so important. The other thing that we emphasize in the education section is patient education. You know, it's so important that patients understand why they're getting antibiotics, what they're getting them for, how long they're going to get them for. And that is a place where we really think we can engage patients and working to help us with our stewardship efforts. And of course, one of the most important things is, you know, what are the potential side effects? You know, no patient should leave the hospital who has had an antibiotic and not know that if they develop diarrhea after they leave the hospital, that they need to let somebody know about that so that we can figure out maybe they have C. diff. That is so important. And again, it's another area where we call for this increased partnership with nurses because you know who's giving the discharge instructions to the patient? It's always the nurse. So engaging nurses in these efforts to provide that patient education information we think is so important. The point about 
patient reporting is interesting. I think we mentioned that Michigan data and they their outcome was patient reported adverse events. And so you have to think that actually it's probably even higher because patients are probably under reporting mild things at home or even serious things and they're just not going to seek healthcare or reporting them. And so very, very interesting all around. Is there anything else? Thank you guys so much for walking through each of the core elements. This has been an awesome discussion and very helpful for all of our listeners. Is there anything else or any major takeaways that you want to leave with our audience about this initiative and, and antimicrobial stewardship moving forward? You know, the, the things that I would like to add is just to let people know that you know, we view this as a, it's a living, a living document and a dynamic process. So as people learn more, if they have thoughts and suggestions and ideas, to please let us know. I mean, Melinda and I uh, get emails all the time. We love hearing from leaders in the stewardship community, the folks who are doing the work. Please do not ever hesitate to send us an email, pick up the phone and call. Uh, let us know what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what's working, what's not. Uh, all of the progress that we make is because people are out there doing the hard work and figuring out how to get it done. And our job here at CDC is to try and flag those successes and show them to other people and help other people follow in your footsteps and implement those things. And we can only do that if you share with us those great successes that you're having or the challenges that you are encountering and trying to brainstorm and figure out ways to uh, to overcome those barriers. So keep the comments, the emails, keep them coming. They have been so helpful and they they really continue to be. Yeah, that's fantastic, Arjun. And I just once again want to thank SDP and Aaron for everything that you've done for our stewardship and the leadership and providing us this great opportunity to reach the membership of SDP and, and beyond. Well, thank you guys. I, I honestly can't thank you enough for joining me today. I've learned a ton from you in a short amount of time, and I hope everyone can take this and, and start to implement these actions, track, report, and help patients. I love that we kind of ended on this. Continue to ask questions. You know, this is such a dynamic process. We learn new things every day. And the scariest words in medicine are, well, that's just because we've always done it that way. And we never want that to be the answer. We want to keep moving the envelope and, ch and challenging the status quo. So um, thank you guys so much for joining me on behalf of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists and all of our listeners. This has been great for everyone at home. You're listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and catch you on our next episode later this week, where we discuss the five things all hospital pharmacists can do to be antibiotics aware. <music>